encourage you to keep those conversations going after the service. This morning, our sermon passage is from the book of John in the New Testament. When you get a chance, if you could open up your Bibles to John chapter 17. That's John chapter 17. We'll be reading verses 6 to 12. All right, guys, John chapter 17, verses 6 to 12. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me as they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know them in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I keep them in your name, which you have given me. Sorry. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except to the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, brother, for reading God's word to us today. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John, going through a series, and we are in a section where Jesus is praying. Um, we get the privilege uh, here to have an insight into communication between God the Son and God the Father. And it's the most precious privilege to be experiencing uh, their communication. Um, and, and so, like we said last week, essentially we're kind of standing on holy ground, really. This is a treasured, precious uh, prayer that we want to learn from and, uh, and grow from. And the, the prayer is divided into kind of three sections. Jesus firstly prays for himself. That's what we saw last week. He's praying that he may be glorified so that the Father is glorified. It's all about the Father's glory. And then he moves now to pray for his immediate disciples. So the ones that we will know as the apostles. He's a prayer for them. And then in two weeks' time, we will see Jesus pray for his um, future disciples, those who would believe in the apostles' message. So I'd like to pray, and then we'll uh, enter into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, we would pray this morning that you would grant us eyes to see such beautiful truths in this text that correspond with the beauty and the majesty and the magnificence of who you are. Help us see you in splendor. Help us see you in clarity. We pray for your name's sake. Amen. Have you considered lately that the world is a dangerous place? Now, I'm not just talking about physical dangers, although that is true. Australia, as you know, is home to some of the most venomous snakes in the world. We have sharks at our metaphorical doorstep. 
And um, particularly over southeast Queensland, there's this big hole in your ozone layer, like a magnifying glass burning all the people that chooses to go outside in the sun. Now, we're aware of such physical dangers, which is why we have things like hospitals, medicines. It's perhaps why you lock your door at night or lock your car when you leave. It's why our world has police and a judicial system. Why? Because we live in a dangerous world. This world is a dangerous place. But I'm talking about another kind of danger of the world we live in. Talk about the spiritual kind. Dangers of living in a world that is actually opposed to God. Living in a world that sits under the shadow of sin and the curse of the fall. I'm talking about living uh, in a world where the dangers of people's hearts that have been bent out of shape by sin turned in on themselves as they disobey their Creator and simply follow their own passions. Danger, for without the saving grace of God, this world already stands condemned. It's dangers. We're living in a dangerous world. Dangers that our children may grow up and walk away from the faith. Dangers that we will give in to temptations and so seek to deny the faith. Dangers that will take good gifts from God, turn them into idols. Dangers that will fail to properly love one another and so do the gospel witness a disservice. Friends, the world is a dangerous place. Now, it's not to say that the world is only a dangerous place and not also a delightful place. The world can be a delightful place as well. I had the joy and privilege on Wednesday night with, with Sam. We, we did a mandate. We went to see a concert together. And uh, we enjoyed the, the good graces of music and arts and wonder and joy and heartbreak. Um, it, was, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful time. And um, in, in this world that we live in, it's actually also a beautiful world. There are wonderful things. There is joy. There is love. There's relationships. We live in the northern Gold Coast. It's an amazing place to live. The world is also a delightful place. And by most accounts, life for many people around the world, though there are exceptions, is safer, a safer place than it was, say, 100 years ago. Saying that the world is a dangerous place as I said, is not to say that it's not also a delightful place, and it's also not to say that it's all doom and gloom, where we have to batten down the hatches, as it were, and retreat from the world. The doomsday clock, if you are aware of that, is currently set to 90 seconds to midnight. But Jesus isn't worried. He knows this world to be a dangerous place, but he also knows how to keep his people safe within such a world. After all, we know that Jesus will say in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you will take them out of the world, but that you will keep them from the evil one. So God's safety plan for Christians isn't that they would be ejected up to heaven, but rather they would be kept safely through this world and their time in it. And so the passage before us today, I want us to see two simple things. I want you to see that God gets His people out of the danger of living in a world under the condemnation of God. And I want you to see that how he secondly guards his people through that danger. God gets his people and then God guards his people. So firstly, he gets his people. Look in verse 6. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. 
yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your world word. God gets them out of danger. The place of danger is the world. The writer of John seems to recognize that the world is simply more than a blue and green floating spherical shape um, circling the sun. The, the world is more than simply the, the trees and the dirt beneath our feet. The, the, the world, that, as John refers to it, plays out to be humanity, the people in this world. But not a humanity that's in a neutral state, but rather a humanity in its lost, fallen condition. A, a world, a humanity that is actually living in rebellion and rejection to God. People estranged from their Creator. And as 1 John describes them, as John 1 describes, a world that did not know Jesus, even though He came into this world as the true light. So the world that we're in is a world that sits under the darkness of sin, as it were cast under the shadow of Satan's rule. The, the, the smudge of sin has so stained the lenses through which we see life that people do not honor God as they ought to, nor love and serve one another. Because of their rejection of the light of God, they, the world stands condemned. Death is the consequence of sin. And so that, my friends, is a dangerous place to be. But into this dark world comes the revelation of Jesus, the light of the world that has come. He has come, as verse 6 says, to manifest, that is to reveal, the name of the Father to people whom the Father gave Him out of the world. A good rescue movie has the hero needing to rescue the victim from the dangers of the bad guy's lair uh, or wherever they're held captive. It's usually Liam Neeson um, trying to save and rescue someone get them out, to save them. Well, here, the way Jesus comes as that hero is to make the truth of God more fully known and more clearly by His words and His actions and His person. People who believe His words are set free indeed. These are His special set of skills, revealing the Father. Jesus gladly accepts this mission from the Father. And you'll notice that the people who experience this rescue, the people that He grabs and gets out of the dangers of the world are identified in two ways. Did you notice? One's from a heavenly perspective and one's from an earthly perspective. You see, from a heavenly perspective, it says they belong to God the Father and were given to the Son. Before God's people were in the world, they were in the plans of God. Before any of us belonged to our family, before you belonged to your favorite supporting, sporting team, if you're a Christian, you belonged to the Father. Jesus says they were yours. It belonged to you, and you have given them to me. Before any of us ever responded to the gospel, or before anyone here, maybe you've been exploring Christianity, or the teachings of Jesus, if you come to know and trust Jesus, well, you have been included in part of God's cosmic plan of redemption from eternity past. Students, you may plan out your assignments depending on your personality type. You might give yourself two weeks, some of you two days, some of you two hours. Heavenly Father has been planning the redemption since the beginning of the world, well prepared to execute it, and He does gets the people out of the world. 
So to be given to Jesus out of the world then is, is not to be taken out of the world, ejected into heaven, but it is to be taken out of the judgment that this worldly order sits under, the world that is set against God, already under His condemnation. Touched on it before. Why are they under the condemnation of God? Well, because as Romans says, what is known about God is, is plain to them. But they have rejected it. They don't respond as they ought to it. And that rejection places every person in a place of danger, a danger we need to be rescued out on. And so Jesus comes to get His people, and the Father gladly gives them to the Son through His work on the cross. So that's from a heavenly perspective. Who are the people that God gets? They are those who the Father has given to the Son. From an earthly perspective, how do you know if, if that were you, for instance? Well, we see that they're identified as those who have kept the Word of God. You see that in verse 6, yours they were, and you gave, me, gave them to me, and they have kept your Word. So God has been doing His saving work behind the scenes, as it were, but on the front stage, what we see out here in our lived experience is, in this case, these disciples, the apostles, have kept the Word of Jesus. That's who Jesus is praying for, after all, in this passage. Did you see that in verse 9? He's very clear for who he's praying for. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus isn't praying for everyone here. He's praying particularly for his disciples, the ones that are next to them. The disciples, the ones who've been following him, those who belong to God and have been given to him. They are distinguished here in contrast to the world. So Jesus is praying for His disciples specifically. There's a kind of love and affection and attention that God has for His people. That Jesus here is bringing to the forefront of His mind these disciples. And the reason He's praying is because they belong to the Father. They are yours. That's why He's praying for them. Jesus is interceding for the people closest to the Father's heart, His disciples. Now, to say this isn't to say, isn't to say that he is not concerned with the world. Oh, he's very much concerned with the world. We know from John 3, 16, it reminds us that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, John three seventeen. So, there are people in the world that are still yet to be saved. He, he, he loves the world. He loves the particular people in the world in a specific way that are His. Wants to rescue them out of the danger of a world that stands condemned. In order to do that, you must believe. You must keep God's word. That's what these disciples have done. They've kept His word. Now, you might think, you might ask, if any of you have been around church for a while, you've read the Gospels, you're, you're clear with the disciples' behavior, you might raise the question and ask, Darren, have these disciples actually kept the, the word of Jesus? I mean, at the past, I mean, they're, they're jostling for position. They're disgruntled with a city, and they're praying that the, the wrath of God pour down in thunder and fire. I mean, Peter gets called Satan. Are you saying this, this group of people have kept your word? Well, I'm not saying it. Jesus is, firstly. And how on earth does he consider that they have kept his word? Well, they have kept His Word in contrast to the world, haven't they? See, the world hasn't kept the Word. There's been a revelation of who the Father is through the words of Jesus. 
through the actions of Jesus, and the world has gone, no thank you. In fact, the world has gone, demon, blasphemer, rejected his words. Meanwhile, the disciples have done what? Have received his words, have taken Jesus at his word to believe that he is the Messiah. You see that in verse 7, he says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Do you want to know this morning how you can pass from the dangers of this world to the delight of God? The answer is, have you received the Word of God? Have you come to believe that Jesus is who He said He is? The Son of God, the sent one, your only source of rescue your only source of life. The disciples are still holding on to Jesus as they hold on to his words. From an earthly perspective, what are they doing? They're keeping his word. From a heavenly perspective, they've been given by the Father. Now, did you notice in verse 10, the people who belong to God, the Father also belong to the Son. It says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So there is a a mutual love and ownership in the Trinity here. Um, children need to be taught to share, and there is, a, depending on the age, really clear lines on who owns what. Our children have different forms of Beyblades and cars, and I don't know who's is who's most of the time. And you've got to rely on them to kind of tell you, this is mine, this one's not, that has a little nick on it, that one's mine, but but there's a source of disagreement and tension and frustration that exists between the children over who owns what. They certainly aren't behaving like the Trinity here. All mine is yours, and all that is yours is mine. Now, why aren't they doing that? Well, because the items aren't actually belonging to both of them. They actually aren't all theirs. And yet, the people of God saved, called, given to the Son by the Father, are fully God the Father's and fully Christ the Son's. Now, how can that be unless Jesus is God Himself? He's claiming authority. He says, everything you have is mine. I was at a wedding yesterday. It's lovely hearing vows. All that I am is yours, all that you are is mine. And there's a beautiful, I'm not sure exactly how they said that. Um, they said it much clearer on the day. With all that I am, with all that I have. And why is that? Why can couples say that? Because they're uniting one in, in love. Well, that's what's happening here with the Father and the Son. The Son is claiming all that is yours is mine. Now, He can't make that claim unless it, in fact, is His. And he can do that because he himself is one with God. And so these disciples are the ones who have kept his word. And you'll notice lastly that they have also glorified the Son. Is it all mine are yours, Jesus says to the Father, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So how was, how was Jesus glorified in the disciples? One writer said it was primarily by believing in him accepting and obeying His words and carrying out His commission that the disciples brought glory to Jesus. 
because in doing so, they're reflected something of His love and grace. And that should be encouraging to us. Here's, here's why. Glorifying God, honouring Him and bringing praise to His name doesn't actually require you to make incredible achievements in this world, to do and demonstrate remarkable acts of success or accolades. All you actually have to do in order to glorify the supreme rule of the world is take Him at His word, believe Him, obey Him, follow His call to make disciples. It's very simple to glorify God. And so these disciples have done it. They've made much of Jesus. God gets His people. This is the first point. He gets them out of danger, danger's grip, and He gets them for Himself. And I think Jesus, in praying this prayer, and the disciples in earshot of hearing it, I think Jesus is wanting to help them at least partly know that they have been swept up in God's big plans of redemption. What is true of these disciples is then true of any disciple throughout history, that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've kept His Word, taken Him at His Word, you belong to the Father. You belong to God. I wonder this morning, do you, do you, do you see your identity? Were you conscious this week that you belong to God? You don't belong to yourself, but to God. You, you don't belong to the world, but you belong to God. Yes, you might belong to a family, you might belong to a husband or a spouse, you, you might belong to a, a, a workplace or workspace. Maybe this week you've experienced rejection in different ways. It felt like you don't belong. Here, you belong to God. When you consider your salvation, do you consider it being swept up into something much bigger than you? You are one person in God's cosmic plan of having a people for Himself for all eternity. Do, do you realize that the, the, the primary reason, if you're a follower of Jesus, isn't because you self-selected yourself to get on the team? That, that God, in His, since eternity past, decided that He would give you to the Son. And that as you take Jesus at His word, you can escape the danger of judgment in this world, friends. God gets His people. He gets them out of danger. He gets them. Secondly, then, the people God gets, He also guards. To throw back to our hero rescuing a, a victim who's been trapped, usually the plot line doesn't finish when they've kind of taken out the bad guys. They've, they've got the person. They've, ta- they've still got to get out of the evil lair or fortress or house or whatever it might be. The same thing is true of God's people. God doesn't simply get us out of condemnation from in the world and then lean over and say, all the best. Dane Ortland's word, he says, he does not forgive us through his work on the cross and then hope we make it the rest of the way. No, he makes sure we're kept safe. God gets us and God guards us. That's what you see in verse 11. He says, I'm no longer in the world, this is Jesus speaking, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them is essentially protect them, make them secure. God's guarding His people. Why? Because Jesus is leaving. He is headed to the Father. So He's not going to be physically present anymore to, to look after them. 
but the people he's got, he wants to keep secure. So he says, Father, would you watch over them? Please, they're precious to me. I've kept them safe. I've built them up. They've received your word, Father. I'm leaving. I'm not going to be with them. Protect them. Uh, Our son Dawson likes to build with kinetics. They're like magnetic tiles that you can build towers and and shapes and different things. And if he builds before school and he's got a tower he's quite um, proud of, one of the things, the requests he'll bring to to, to myself or to Tegan is, would you watch over this? Would you guard this? Would you protect it? Um, because there's another one, Dempsey the Destroyer, who is at home, our one-year-old daughter, and she's never far away. Danger is around the corner, literally, and she'll come in and starry-eyed and take it all down. So his absence, Dawson's absence from guarding the thing he loves most, he petitions mum and dad, keep it safe. Keep it safe. Jesus knows this world is fraught with dangers, so he prays, Holy Father, Keep them in your name. You've noticed that he's now addressing him as Holy Father. First it was Father, then it's Holy Father, and later it's going to be Righteous Father. Holiness, Holy Father, I think, is because to be holy is to be set apart, to be distinct, to be other than. The Father who is set apart, the Father who has set these disciples apart, Holy Father, would you keep them distinct? Would you preserve them? Would you protect them? Would you help them not slip into unholiness? Keep them in your name, your holy name, your distinct name, your set-apart name. That's the request. Keep them safe. Jesus says a similar thing, doesn't he, in verse 12? While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. I have guarded them. I'm not sure um, how you came to hear the gospel, but it was probably through a family member or a friend or a gathering at church. It's probably one of those three things. And so if you, might, if you can think and picture for yourself who the person was that, that shared the gospel with you at that moment that you responded, if you, if you can, or just think of the people involved, the question I want to ask you is, how did they come to hear the gospel? And there's a high chance that they heard from a family member or, or a friend or, or some kind of church gathering or, or evangelistic rally of sorts. And if you would ask them, hey, how did you hear the gospel? They would probably say something along the lines of, well, I, I heard it from a friend, a family member, or, or, or a church service that word the gospel preached. And you could trace it all the way back, couldn't you? Keep going back, keep going back, keep going back. And if you trace it all the way back, you might even ask the question, how on earth did these 11 blokes get this life-giving message to the next generation? How on earth did they not give in to the persecutions they were facing and the pressures to conform to a different way of life? And the answer to that question is in part because Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed that they would be guarded, kept, protected, true to the revelation of God in passing on the gospel message. 
Now, verse 12 is also clear that, not, that one of them was lost. He says, I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that Scripture might be fulfilled. We met him earlier. His name is Judas. He will betray Jesus. And his description here is in no uncertain terms. It is a disastrous manner, son of destruction. He would be known not only by what his fate would be, but also by his actions in betraying the Son of God. You see, Judas did not receive the revelation of who Jesus truly was. In fact, Judas rejected the words of Jesus and the offer of grace. Judas failed to remain faithful to the name of God. That didn't mean, though, that Jesus failed. See how it says this was that Scripture might be fulfilled. God would work His plans even through these evil means like Judas's betrayal to, bl- to bring about His plan of redemption. God keeps those who are His. And God is sovereign over the purposes of those who seek to do evil, even to the Son of God. Disciples received His word. They remained faithful. They were kept secure in a dangerous world. God guards His people because He is leaving. And secondly, God guards His people in His name. So notice then the nature of, of this security that they have, this protection. Jesus says, keep them in your name. Now, your name can refer to different things in Scripture, the name of God. But I think here it's referring to the true revelation of who God is. I think that's true. You can see in verse 11 and 12 that this was the same name that was given to the Son. That is that the Son shared a true revelation of who the Father was to His disciples. So so when Jesus is asking, keep them in your name, He's asking them to remain secure and protected in truth, that they don't go outside the truth of who God is, that they don't look beyond for the words of eternal life, that they stay in the revelation that Jesus has given them. They remain faithful to the revelation that they have received. That's where security is going to be. Step out of that, no security. Jesus was able to do this during His earthly ministry, wasn't He? That's what verse 12 was about. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Can you picture Jesus just spending time with His disciples, teaching them truths, how to live, how to spend, how to forgive, how to relate to people, words of eternal life. He's teaching them, guarding them in truth. What's He doing? He's protecting them, keeping them in the true revelation of the Father and His words. He's continually continually to accurately reveal the Father to them. And that was the success of his mission. Verse 6, I've manifested or revealed your name to the people whom you gave me. So so imagine the name of God for a moment, for the visual learners. Imagine the name of God as like a big picture frame. And in this picture frame, there is the true revelation of who God is and his character. And Jesus has, has given that picture with those words to the disciples so they can see more clearly and that the Father would be revealed more fully. And Jesus says, keep them in this name that they may be safe, they may be secure. And so if you were drowning at sea, it's only in the life raft that you would be safe and secure. And so it is there. There's no safety outside the name of God. It's in the name of God, in the true revelation of who He is, kept safe in a dangerous world. What kind of dangers would these disciples be kept from? Well, we, we know they can't have been kept from physical dangers. You might not, if you aren't familiar with the book of Acts, it, it, it tracks the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And you'll notice in the book of Acts that the people of God are often getting quite beaten up, thrown in jail, imprisoned. In fact, as church tradition would teach us, 11 of the 12 disciples would die a martyr's death. John would be um, on the Isle of Padmos, he'd be uh, marooned. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a good way to go. They weren't kept safe from the physical punishments and persecutions of life. But they would be kept from denying the faith, wouldn't they? And they would be kept from distorting the faith as they passed it on. You see in verse 15 that as they are in the world, Jesus prays that they may be kept from the evil one, that is kept from his rule and power to influence their life. The danger that faces these disciples, these apostles now that Jesus is leaving is that they would deny the truth of Christ, that they would go out of his name, that they would not present him truly to the world, that through persecution and pressure, they would cave in. They would corrupt the gospel. That was the danger that it was present. And Jesus praying, keep them. Polycarp was an early church martyr. And though he would be burned at the stake, he'd be an example of a person who kept the name of God and was kept in the name of God. When asked repeatedly to deny his faith and so spare his life, he responded with, Four score and six years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? In his final words, being in prayer, he says, I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour that I might be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. Lost his life, he kept the faith. He was kept in the name of of the Father. Persecution didn't take him out. Persecution, persecution took him to, to the front of the line to meet his Savior. And as for us here in the Northern Gold Coast, it, it probably won't be physical persecution that you're going to face the dangers that's going to make you cave in or corrupt you remaining faithful to God. It's probably most likely going to be precious to conform, isn't it? Are you aware of them? Do you, do you experience them? Where did you feel them this past week? Pressing in on you. Leaning in on you. What truths of Scripture were you tempted not to obey or to live in light of? Where did you feel the pressure this past week? Where did you feel the pressure this past month? this past year. See, there's danger. It's a dangerous world we live in. And the pressure of persecution is actually probably, for many of us, is going to be the pressure to conform to the ways of this world. We need Jesus' prayer to be kept safe, to remain another week, to remain faithful. God gets us and God guards us. He keeps us safe. Now, we've got to see that him keeping us safe or guarding us, protecting us, isn't simply, in this case, so that we would get to heaven as a disgruntled, divided people. In fact, he's got, his, his hopes are much higher. Did you see the purpose there in verse 11? It says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
So Jesus is saying the purpose for which I want them guarded and protected is oneness. He wants them to be united. He wants them to be together. I wonder, how, how, how close do you think the disciples were to one another? What kind of love and intimacy and partnership did the, did the original apostles have? What kind of unity did they share? What kind of commitment and devotion to one another and to the spread of the gospel did they have? Because Jesus is praying that they would have that. And by implication, I think that we would have that. So I wonder, how, how close are you to the brothers and the sisters in this church? Do you, do you think of them as brothers and sisters? Closer, eternally, spiritual family, closer than biological family, brothers and sisters. How close is the oneness that you experience? Well, Jesus has a prayer in mind, and the quality of the oneness that he has in mind, this is remarkable. This, this ought to set before us something quite spectacular, but something also quite confronting. Because did you see how Jesus thinks that, that they would be one? He says that they might be one even as we are one. So there is a kind of closeness and intimacy and alignment and togetherness and unity that the Godhead has, and Jesus is asking the Father, hey, would you bring those bunch of people we just saved out of the world, would they share in that? Would they have it like we've got it? Would they be able to partake in this kind of oneness? One writer says this oneness, is the, it is the divine unity of love that is referred to. All wills bowing in the same direction, all affections burning with the same flame, all aims directed to the same end, one blessed harmony of love, one blessed harmony of love. How was church today? How'd you feel about the people? It was one blessed harmony of love at Coomera Baptist Church today. Anything less than that Jesus isn't praying for. He wants that for us. How does the oneness of the Father and the Son inform our oneness? I think in a few ways. Firstly, their oneness is around glorifying God. The Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father. And so in our oneness, the unity we share, we grow in this as we glorify God together. We make it our aim to make much of Him. As we do that, we experience oneness. We certainly don't experience oneness when we're trying to glorify ourselves, make much of ourselves, organize our lives around ourselves. No, when we glorify God together, there's a oneness there. They're one in their alignment to the true revelation of each other. So, so their oneness is founded upon the truth and doctrine. Truth and doctrine. Now, I think it's common today that, that people think it doesn't really matter what you believe. Just love one another and go out and love people. Theology divides. So put that to the back and just focus on loving people. That's just not what Jesus is praying for. That's just not who, how Jesus sees things. Because he's praying that they might be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. The Son so perfectly reveals the Father, and the Father only gives words of truth to the Son. They are unified in theology, in doctrine, in what they believe about God. And so it ought to be in the church. In fact, a greater unity in belief actually leads to a greater unity in love and affection and mission. 
the more you know together, the more there is to enjoy together. You get to agree upon who Jesus is. Try have unity with people you don't agree on who Jesus is. Very difficult. You get to agree on how he's called us to live, what holiness looks like, to love one another, and what the mission in the world is. That's, that's deep unity. But when we have incorrect doctrines or teachings, or we don't live out our doctrines and teaching faithfully, it leads to disunity. Friends, true belief, true unity is, is, around, under, is around here on, on, on true theological accuracy. So we, we want to be right about who God is, we love Him together. Now, now, on a side note, this isn't to say that, that then denominations are anti-unity. I think in God's providence, and He's allowed that there are certain ways that churches organize themselves, that if they're all trying to be lumped in the one church, it would be quite divisive and irritable. And so, I think what you have is a kind of parallel charity that exists because we're all working to do our best with the revelation God has given us. And so denominations don't need to be divisive, but rather we should be unified in our same Savior, in our same hope and glory, in the same gospel. And then letting our consciences not be marked by other particular ways that we form and, and organize as churches. Well, there's the thirdly, there's then there's one in purpose and mission. The Father giving the Son words to speak and works to accomplish. The Son receiving those works and passing on His words. So there is a oneness that's enhanced when you're on mission together. It's making disciples, isn't it? Uh, verse 21, you, you read that. He wants them to be one for the sake of mission. He prays that they may be one. This is talking about those who would believe. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why? So why does he want them to be one? Because he wants the people in the world to believe that Jesus was sent by God the Father. And the way we love one another and unify together actually helps our mission and supports it. Um, people, I think, feel more close to one another when they're serving together, when you're in the trenches together. Um, have you felt that on, if you've ever done short-term mission trips? And day one, it's it's... It's a bunch, bunch of random people in a room doing some form of awkward icebreaker game. And you don't really know them. By about day three, when you've been sharing the gospel, serving in a community, doing Bible studies, there's a great love and affection that begins to form with these people. You thought, this is amazing. I had barely liked you day one, and now I can't imagine life without you. Well, that's happens. Why? Because I think when you're on mission together, there's a unity, there's a oneness. But there's a joy, friends, in knowing that, not just in short-term mission trips, but in the weekly rhythms of our life. These people in this church are gifts to you to help you make disciples, to help all us make disciples in both evangelism and training and discipling people in the Word of God. The question is, are you on mission with the people in this church? Do you feel locked arms in arms, trying to help one another glorify Jesus, Disciple one another in His Word. I think sometimes all of us can feel that we're not really feeling the oneness within a local church. I think that can be true of many people. Maybe some of you, you find yourself in that spot today. You, you just say, Darren, this oneness and this unity you talk about, I, I just don't, 
feel that with the members here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in a different place. And there might be many reasons for that. I just happen to wonder if one of the reasons might be because we're undervaluing our shared mission together in helping see the gospel advance, praying for one another, teaching the Bible to one another, instructing one another. As Ephesians 4 says, the whole purpose of this is that we may grow and attain greater unity in the knowledge of the Son. So be on mission. If you want to get close to the people here, come be on mission with them. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you help these people follow Jesus more faithfully. You bring the word of God that you've encountered during the week, and you come ready to share that with someone else. And then you ask them how you can be encouraging and praying for them. It's, it's again, it's simple stuff. This is one of the ways we can foster unity and oneness amongst us. We hope, we hope that can happen. We know oneness can be hard. And I do not want to downplay the difficulty and danger before us. All of us have walked in here today with a history, with a little backpack of baggage that we carry. Not only family stuff, but church stuff. And there's a bunch of reasons why there's a bunch of things in that backpack you don't want to bring, bring out and unpack with the people here for fear and insecurities, and for some of you, very valid reasons. Well, friends, the unity and the oneness that Christ is wanting is to say, hey, would you, would you slowly but surely start unpacking some of that with us? That we would love you and you would love us, and that we would grow in oneness with one another around the truth of who God is, around the true revelation of Him. You long for that? We don't want to downplay the difficulty of, of oneness in the church. It can be hard. Friends, if this wasn't hard, Jesus wouldn't be praying for it. Do you know how hard this is? It would require the Son of God to pray for it, to petition God the Father to work it. And so he does this prayer. And the hope for us, I think, in this dangerous world that seeks to divide God's people is to simply return to our oneness in Christ. Return to this place. Return to union with Him. So if you're here this morning, you're struggling with oneness with God's people, come back to Christ. Listen to what A.W. Tozer wrote. He said, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers met together each one looking away to Christ are nearer in heart to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Set our eyes on the true revelation of who God is. And that true revelation of who God is brings with him a people. And then so grow in love and serve those people. Set your eyes on him. So what would it look like, church, if the Father would answer our prayers here this week? What might it look like? What might it look like if you were to finish the week and go, yeah, I th God answered this prayer? Well, firstly, take courage that God did answer His prayer because these disciples faithfully put on and carried on and passed on the gospel message to us. We're here because God answered their prayer, this prayer from Jesus the Son. Secondly, I think J.C. Ra was right when he said, what Christ asked for His people, His people should ask for themselves. So our prayer this morning is that we would pray for greater oneness. Would, would you like that? Do you think our, our, um, our community could use a little more oneness within the people of God? Let's pray for it. Let's ask God to bring it about. So we pray for it. Parents, would you be praying that your children are kept from evil? 
Would you be praying? Just as Jesus prays that they would be kept in the Father's name. Parents, pray that your children would be kept from evil. But you know what oneness means? Oneness means the rest of us in this church community are also praying that your children too would be kept from evil and kept safe in the Father's name and that we would help actively seek to help disciple them towards truth in God. We should be praying daily against temptation. One writer said, because Jesus prays for us, we're enabled to say yes to what's right and best. So yes, so, so pray and then act in obedience. Oneness means that then we pray not only that I'm kept from temptation, but that others would be kept from temptation. So you pray for other people in the church. And then you seek to actively spur them on to love and good deeds. Husbands and wives, you should be praying this week that your spouse be kept in the name of Jesus. To know His name, to have security and safety in His name. You should be seeking to minister the truth of the God to one another, to dispel lies. But oneness means that all of us in this church should be praying for our marriages that they would be strengthened and edified, that husbands and wives would remain faithful and joyful. And oneness also means that those who are married would be mindful of those who are single, to be praying for them, that Christ would be content in their life, that they would steward their time to His glory, and that we would open our lives to be able to bring them in so they would be built up and encouraged. Jesus' prayer is answered. And one of the ways it's answered is through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the people of God, guarding one another in the gospel. Now, I want us to think by way of conclusion that this oneness means that all Christians are going to have to look and act and speak the same, okay? <laughs> we're not here to create a, a weird Christian subculture where, um, where things get crazy and everyone starts speaking the same with a weird voice and start having fish stickers on the back of our cars that all look the same. If you've got a fish sticker, it's okay. We're just saying not everyone has to have one. In fact... Well, it's really, it's really important, but there's no such thing as a Christian personality. Nathan and I were talking about this week. Like, you, don't, you don't become a Christian and lose your personality and become like a Christian personality now or something. There's Christian character. There's not Christian personality. There's a bunch of personalities. So when God saves you, you're still going to be you, for better or worse. <laughs> Most likely for better because of the sanctifying power of Christ. But you keep your personality you keep your quirks. If you're an extrovert, you probably still remain an extrovert, but with a seatbelt on. And if you're an introvert, you remain an introvert, but you learn to be nice and talk to people, right? This happens. You keep your personality. If you're energetic and you like to talk a lot and really hospitable, God will sanctify that and use that for His purposes. If you're more um, subdued, if you're more like a small, whatever it is, friends, Oneness does not mean uniformity. It actually means God, as He saves us, He will, he will bring out the truer us. A diversity, true diversity, that is used to build up the whole body so that we grow in oneness. Friends, we have been taken out of the world of the danger of worldly condemnation. We have been gifted by the Father to the Son. Let us then become what we were designed to be, people consumed with the glory of God and the good of others. Let these truths that God has got us and that God guards us, let that lead to a beautiful, rich oneness in this church. And let's pray that Jesus would bring it about. Let's pray now.